So we are in Deuteronomy all year. And we're in chapter 12 this week. Chapter 12 has begun the stipulations, the section that deals with this is how Israel, you are going to live in the land. That's the main concern of this section of Deuteronomy. And it's good, this section is going to go through chapter 26. This whole, it's, it's restating the law for the new generation. And remember the Exodus generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai, when they were going, into the, going to go into the land, they received provisionary Torah. In other words, they received, hey, this is how you're going to live while you are traveling in the desert with the tabernacle around it. So that was all of the how they're going to organize their camps and what you could and couldn't do in the camp, outside the camp, clean, unclean, in the assembly, outside the assembly. All of that was for Israel on the move. Now, Deuteronomy, that has come to an end, and they're looking forward to Israel in the land. So this is God telling this generation, this is how you're going to live when you get into the land that I have given you. And so that's how chapter 12 begins. It says, these are the decrees and the laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. So the key is that God has given them the land. He's given it them as their inheritance. And the land comes with stipulations. And that's never going to change. God never gave Israel a blank check when it comes to the land. There were always stipulations. There were always, you want to, I'm giving you this land to live in. But to remain in it, you have to live in covenant obedience to me. So throughout all of scripture, that's never going to change. And that, that even with what's going on right now in the world, that needs to be taken into account as well. That God's, nobody can presume that, that God's got their back unless they are walking in covenant with God. And that's what he's emphasizing right up front. When you get into the land, as long as you live in the land, this is how you're going to live. So number, the first thing he tells them, verse 2, destroy completely all the high places, excuse me, all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you're dispossessing worship their gods. That's their first requirement. Israel needs to keep in mind, and we need to keep in mind as we're walking through Deuteronomy, as we've been doing for years, if you've been coming to this Bible study, the reason God is giving Israel this entry into the land as their military leader and, and letting them conquer is because he is judging those particular peoples that they are going to displace. Not just whoever's in their way, but very particular peoples, collectively known as the Canaanites or the Amorites. But listed all the way back in Genesis 15 as the specific seven peoples of Canaan. So when it says the nations, the word nations is just goyim. It means Gentiles or peoples. We don't think of nations like, you know, Russia, America, China. Those are nation nations. At this day, think of like city states. Think of peoples, particular peoples in this area. That's who Israel is being sent to drive out. And not just because God doesn't like these kind of people, but he likes these kind of people. No. He, they're sent mainly to drive out the practices, the religious practices of those people. The Canaanite religion, the Canaanite idolatry is what God is sending Israel to judge, not the Canaanite ethnicity. We know this because people who are ethnically Canaanite will enter into or become part of the people of God. 
they will actually, some of them will come to faith in God. People who are outside of Israel, people who are Moabites, like Ruth. People who are Kenizzites, like Caleb. People who are not ethnically Israel. So Israel, again, it has to be emphasized because it just gets assumed and it's so wrong. God is never in favor of an ethnicity. He's in favor of a covenant identity. And that covenant identity from all, from all points in time has always consisted of all who come and put their covenant faith in the God of Israel, Jew or Gentile. In the New Testament, it's just going to get cranked up to a whole new level because the gospel is going to go out to wider range of Gentiles. And more Gentiles will come to believe in Israel's Messiah and be grafted into the tree of Israel. But from the beginning, it was always covenant faith, not ethnicity. And that's a key to remember because as we go into the conquest, it's going to be tempting to just fall back to city, uh, uh, national concepts of nationalism or concepts of ethnicity and miss the fact that it's all based on covenant, covenant obedience and, and, and righteousness. So what God's saying is just destroy all. You're going to go in. I'm sending you in to erase the vestiges of Canaanite idolatry. So he's going to be specific. Verse 3, break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. That's the culmination. Wipe out the names of these gods and their practices from these places. Because God wants, when you look at a high hill, or you look at a tree, or you look at a fertile field, he wants you to see his hand in creation. Not, that's the home of Baal. That's the home of his consort, Asherah. That's the home of Dagon, the god of grain. That's not, but that's what had happened. The world had gone astray. And so what God's saying is, no, wipe their names out from those places. Because, as we're going to see in the next paragraph, God is going to put his name in the land. And there cannot be two names associated when God is one of those names. All the ancient peoples were polytheistic. They were pluralistic. And God is saying, no, they may have had many gods in Egypt. They may have had many gods in Babylon. They may have had many gods in Canaan, many gods in Mesopotamia. There's one God who's creator of everything. That's the God that humanity is perishing apart from knowing and, and, and spiraling off into sin and rebellion and death and all of these practices that they've come up with and invented over the years. That is what God is redeeming, wanting to redeem humanity as a whole at the large level from, and he wants to do it through establishing Israel in this land, and then that will then spread, knowledge of God will spread to the, to, to the ends of the earth that the prophets talk about. Okay. Good. Verse 3, Asherah, give us a definition of that. Uh, Asherah, well, yeah, they just, your just, uh, translation just transliterated it, Asherim. Um, yeah, they just transliterated it. Im is a plural ending, so it's Asherahs or Asherah poles, and they are, um, Structures that were representative of the female counterpart to Baal. So we've talked about Baal is the storm god. He controls thunder, lightning, rain. Asherah is the his consort, the female goddess, fertility and, and romance and you know uh, crops and all of that stuff. So when those two come together sexually in the minds of the Canaanites, then their crops are blessed, their animals are blessed, their own offspring are blessed. So the Asherah poles were the places where Asherah was worshipped. And the high places were the places where the Baal was worshipped. You know, Baal, Asherah comes up out of the ground. Baal comes down from the sky. So you'd worship Asherah as something that resembles a tree or a pillar, something coming up from the earth. You worship Baal somewhere high. 
He climbed the mountain, worship Baal where he can see you. So all of this just swirled around, but they were Canaanite fertility uh, deity symbols, shrines basically. And so verse 4, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. So on all the high hills and all the places, wherever, that's where the Canaanites worship. Wherever they found a spot that was suitable, they would worship. Wherever they found a spot that reminded them of Baal, Asherah, Dagon, any of their gods, they would worship. What God's saying is you must not, you, my people Israel, my covenant vassal, you must not worship me in their way. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. Remember, God's dwelling is the tabernacle. He's dwelling with his people. And he wants to dwell with his people. Now, when they get into the land right now, God is dwelling literally in their midst. They're camped out around the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings. But when they get into the land, then the people are going to inhabit spread out throughout the land. And the tribes, as we saw in the book of Numbers, the land's going to be divvied up by tribes. And everybody's going to have their own land. So then... Where's God going to dwell? Well, he's going to dwell, as we saw in Numbers, through symbolically the Levite cities in each tribe, or in each tribe's land. There will be Levitical cities. So God will dwell there in a secondary sense. But God will primarily dwell in one place in the land, in the tabernacle, because it's not going away. But it'll be that one particular place. And it doesn't name it in this passage because the place will change. Because God will be a God who dwells. It won't even be until Solomon's time that that finally a temple of permanent home is built. God will live in a tent for hundreds of years with his people. He's not even the one that wanted a house or a temple. He'll even tell David, this isn't my idea. You know, if you want to do this, all right, fine, but this is not my idea. I'm happy in my tent. So God's not naming a place because unlike the Canaanite religions, places were not significant in terms of holiness, presence was what made a place holy. It wasn't a geographical spot. It was who was in or on or among or within that geographical spot. So what God is saying is wherever I choose to place my name to dwell, at one point it will be Shechem, at one point it will be Gilgal, at one point it will be, eventually it will be uh, Jebus, which becomes Jerusalem. At one point, it will be Shiloh. Like, these are different cities, but God's saying, wherever I am, that's where you will worship me. That's where you will do any ritual, sacrificial worship will happen in my presence, not on any high hill or under any spreading tree, as the Canaanites did. So, verse 5, or, yeah. You're to seek the place your Lord God will choose among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, which you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and your flocks. In other words, all your Levitical sacrifices, all the offerings that we've read about two years ago when we were in Leviticus. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and rejoice. The word is sing in Hebrew. Rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. So you are not to do, as we're doing here today, everyone as he sees fit. I'm talking about their time in the wilderness where there wasn't any specific designated place for sacrifices other than the tabernacle. Uh, Verse 9, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, 
and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you're to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, special gifts, all the choice possessions you vowed to the Lord, and there rejoice before the Lord your God. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants, and the Levites from your town who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. So he's reemphasizing this portable Mount Sinai that he's given them known as the tabernacle. He's going to set it up somewhere. That's the place where they will go. Not wherever's convenient. So the tribes that are living further away, at some point, if the tabernacle's further away, they're going to have to go. It's not a matter of just, oh, well, God is everywhere. We worship, I worship God on the golf course. I worship God. You know, you've all heard that. No, 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 no. That's not the purpose. You can commune with God anywhere, but worship is a corporate event, a community event. And we don't get to, to dictate the terms of that. At least Israel didn't at the time. Now, things do change under the new covenant because Jesus says there will be a time coming when you won't worship God on this mountain or that mountain but we worship him in spirit and in truth. So under the new covenant, there is a kernel of truth to the idea that you can worship God anywhere, but you can't corporately worship God anywhere because corporate worship is inherently communal. And that's what God desires of his people. Now in the old covenant, it was to take place in this setting. In the new covenant, we see that this, how the people of Israel gets transferred, not transferred really, but, but expanded into the community of God in wherever they are which we would call the churches of the church or the church gatherings. But the point is that it is community that God wants, not just individual piety. And so he's made it so that Israel will have to come together. They will have to come together to celebrate these feasts, these festivals, these sacrifices. You cannot, you won't go out and sacrifice wherever you want, just wherever's convenient and whatever you want. That's what the Canaanites did, and that's what eventually led down the path to idolatry. To creating a God in your own image, creating a God that's convenient for you, and God saying, no, it's not that way with my covenant people. However, this raises a dilemma. The dilemma is, okay, but in the wilderness, all of our meat, all of our food meat has come from the sacrifices that have done in the tabernacle. But now, if I'm living way down in Beersheba or way up in Dan, and the tabernacle's here in the middle, anytime my family wants meat to eat, we have to go down to the tabernacle, give a gift, have it slaughtered, and then bring it back to eat. That's like weeks worth of journey. It won't even last that long. So logistically, now that they're no longer going to be camped around the central sanctuary, there's a problem that springs up. Hey, this has been our butcher shop so far, the tabernacle. What do we do when the butcher moves to another, you know, hundreds of miles away? That's what this section is provisioned for. God says, updating what he said in Leviticus, 17, he says, nevertheless, you may butcher your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were a gazelle or a deer, meaning as if it was something you hunted. According to the blessing the Lord your God gives you, both the ceremonially unclean and the clean, you may eat it. You must not eat the blood, pour it out on the ground like water. You must, not eat in, uh, you must not eat in your towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and oil or the firstborn of your herds and flocks or whatever you vowed to give or your free will offerings or special gifts. 
Instead, you're to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons, your daughters, your men servants, maid servants, and the Levites from your towns. So he's saying, you can eat your meat. These are these are shepherders. Uh, these are pastoral. These these are these are agricultural people. So they subsist in part off of their flocks and their herds. And God's saying, yeah, you can eat your meat just like you would whatever you hunt. You can, I'm not concerned about that. What you can't eat in your own homes and towns are the sacrifices vowed to me, are the gifts given to me. The things that are sacred, the things that are a part of worship, those have to be brought to the tabernacle. Those have, you have to bring your gifts and your tithes and your offerings. If you, then you can eat it with your friends and your family together rejoicing in my presence. But you can't just whatever you want wherever you want it and say, oh, well, this, this meal is going to be a sacrifice, but I don't want to take it to the temple. I'll just sacrifice it and eat it here. Right? So God's setting it up. He's providing provision when you're in the land, logistical clarity, but also enforcing the concept of coming together to worship him the way he has deemed it for his covenant people. And so he goes on to tell him, this is how, he's basically adjusting or, or, or fitting the requirements he had given the previous generation on not uh, unclean, not eating food, uh, meat in an unclean way, and not eating the blood of it, and not doing—he's basically adjusting that to the situation that he's now taking them into, into the land. So he's making provision because why? Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Right? God's set this tabernacle system up. Not he didn't create people so that they would live by this system. He created this system for the benefit of the people who were to live under it, for what it would communicate to the world, to them, and, and the type of society it would set up. And so, yes, it's important. Yes, you can't neglect it and just do what you want under Israel's law. But at the same time, there's a recognition that logistics do matter, and God does take it into account, and he doesn't put unreasonable demands on his covenant people. So it's that tension between obedience and changing circumstances. And you see in Scripture God being willing when legitimate things change to accommodate those changes in legitimate ways. Not flippantly or not just for the sake of convenience, though. So it goes on then to say, um, when your Lord your God has enlarged your territory, as he promised you, and you crave meat, and you say, I'd like some meat, and then you, then you may eat as much of it as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you can butcher animals from the herds and the flocks the Lord has given you, as I've commanded you. And in your own towns, you can eat as much of them as you want. Eat them as you would, a gazelle or a deer. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat. In other words, you don't have to have ritual cleanliness to eat a normal meal. You have to have ritual cleanliness to enter the assembly of the tabernacle and present a sacrifice. That was, recap the Leviticus year we spent, if you want to go more into that. Uh, on the podcast or the website, but the Levitical holiness, cleanliness rituals were for entering into the sacred space. For your day-to-day -day life, there wasn't that distinction in terms of your sustenance, only in terms of the worship. So then, be sure, verse 23, but be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. 
Do not eat it so it may go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the holdover from Leviticus 17 that remains is eating of the blood. Now, the question people wonder, why can't you eat blood? Well, a couple of the reasons. One, it seems to have been a Canaanite ritual. It seems to have had a symbolic purpose. There seems to have been something happening by taking the blood. Blood in the ancient world and even in, as we've seen in Torah is the symbol of life. Blood is the symbol of both life and death, paradoxically. Because blood inside the body is life. Blood outside of the body is death. You don't have to be a modern scientist to know that. And so that symbol, blood, is a powerful symbol that functions in both ways. It's the same kind of as how the symbol of the serpent has functioned in the medical world, right? It's a symbol of medicine, but it's also poison because it's kind of both, uh, depending on how it's used. And that's why the serpent is on the medical, whatever that image is. Um, it's that way with the blood. It's, it's a symbol of life, but it's also a representation of death. And what God's saying is blood, life is mine, ultimately. So all life, you will pour out on the ground. You will basically give back to me. You don't get to take that part in. You don't get to eat that. You don't need to. And symbolically, what it communicates is something powerful. So that's the stipulation he stays with. Interestingly, in Acts 15, when the New Testament, and they're trying to figure out what of the law do we make Gentiles adhere to, this is actually one of the things that they tell Gentiles to do as well. Avoid things that don't, don't eat blood. Now what that does for you when you go to England and want some blood pudding, work that out between you and the Lord. Uh, when you go hunt your first deer and have to drink the blood. You know, that's between you and God. I, but, but just know that both Testaments aren't cool with that. <laughs> so do that with what you will. He goes on to say though, um, verse 26, but take your consecrated things, so not talking about normal food, but talking about offerings. Take your consecrated things and whatever you vowed to give and go to the place the Lord will choose. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifice must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you're about to invade and dispossess. But when you've driven them out and settled in their land, and after they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how did these nations worship their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Again, God is not mad because the Canaanites don't worship him. God does not destroy nations because they don't worship him in the historical realm. God does not know what God's anger gets kindled over, what his judgment falls on, are nations that not only don't worship him, but do so in a detestable way, in an abhorrent way, in a wantonly immoral way. Burning your sons and daughters, child sacrifice, is something that will bring God's judgment. And that is what the Canaanites, not only did they have their, their, their 
crazy sexual worship practices that, that, you know, orgies under the high places to get Baal's excitement so that then Baal and Asherah would have their own sexual escapades and then that would ensure everybody's crops grew. That was bad enough. But what was even worse was when saying, okay, well, that's not working, so we got to do something to really get their attention. If we want them to give us something valuable, we need to give them something valuable. So they'd start with the firstborn. Then it would start with the best and the choicest of the animals. Then it would start with their grains and the first fruits of that. And then it would start with more of that. Then it would start, well, what's more valuable than our sacrifices of animals or plants? Ourselves. And so then they would offer their own children. And, and that's, that's when it's almost like you see that as a turning point and the uh, switch flips. Interestingly, later, Israelite kings would do that same thing. Israel would not heed this warning. So later, King Ahaz, if you read 2 Chronicles 28, King Ahaz would do this in a time of desperation, offer child sacrifice. Um, king Manasseh, the evilest king in Israel's history, 2 Kings 21, he would do it as well. And those, that's when, after their reigns, see the kingdom destroyed. God says, fine, you act like Canaanites, you get treated like Canaanites. Come on, Assyria. Come in and drive them out. And then later, southern kingdom, come on, Babylon, come in and drive them out. So God doesn't show partiality based on ethnicity or claims of religiosity. He shows it based on covenant faithfulness. The last point to mention before we end this section, and, and verse 32 technically in the Hebrew text is verse 1 of the next chapter. So that's why I didn't uh, start there, stop there. But the last thing to mention is back up in the paragraph around verse, mm, verse 12 or so. It's important to emphasize this point. Two times in this section when God's talking about bringing their offerings, their burnt offerings and their grain offerings and this and that, we see that as kind of a, a burden. Like, I got my paycheck. Ugh, I got to write 10% off and give it to God. Oh, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to, you know, like we see that as, as a burden. In Israel's case, God was saying, look, I'm, you're, you're a rabble of slaves. You had nothing but misery in Egypt. I am bringing you into this land in response to that, in obedience to that. I want you to celebrate the goodness that I'm giving you. So when you do bring your offering, it's not like they're just giving it and like, oh, that's it. You know, it's not like they pass the collection plate. None of that stuff. We make giving such a chore. No, you would, okay, I, I'm bringing my offerings. So I have a burn offering. That will go to God, but that's only, that's the rare one, as we saw in Leviticus. Most of the offerings would be like the peace offering, the fellowship offering, the, the transgression offering. Those were the ones that you would bring, and they consisted of grain, alcohol, sorry Baptist, grain, alcohol, and meat, and, and some methods. And they would take that and they would offer it to God and then they would celebrate. It would be a celebration, a dinner, a party. And that's the thing that gets overlooked in the Old Testament is the sacrificial system was Israel's way of celebrating and they did it through family barbecues. I mean, that's essentially what it was. Certain animals and they offered, the altar was a big barbecue. And then the priests and the Levites would get a portion because they're the ones doing the work. You don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. The worker deserves their wages. But then the family, the people, the friends who were celebrating, whatever they were celebrating, they would enjoy the rest of it together. 
so the purpose of gathering was not just, oh, I gotta be around these people because God wants it. No, it was to bring together, to have communal meals, to share the table. And that never changes, even in the New Testament. Every time Jesus is going to say something profound, almost it seems like he's doing it around a table or with food in the vicinity. Because there's something, there's something sacred about that, sharing a meal together. And that's what we've done today, but we're out of time. So next week, come back. We're going to pick up at chapter 13 with the tail end of chapter 12. And um, if you want some seconds, I'll go grab some containers. But otherwise, you guys have a great week. See you next week.